Bitcoin mining can be plugged into the existing nuclear fleet as it is and, and shore up the economics right now because a lot of the reactors that are being shut down are because they're not economically competitive on a grid that has a large share of wind and solar. Hello there. How are you all? You're having a good day. I am absolutely buzzing. I'm going to try and not talk about football every show. I know loads of you don't give a shit. But we played third place in the table last night. We played Moulton FC and we won 5-0. You'll probably hear my voice is a bit croaky. I was down there shouting. And uh, we had some sponsors there for the first time, which was very cool. We had Pascal and Ian over from Ledger who came and watched the game. So that was pretty awesome. We're still top of the table. And guess what? We've got 21 points. Satoshi will be proud. But I promise I won't talk about football every week. Okay, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast. It's brought to you by Gemini. It is the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today we've got an interview on nuclear energy and Bitcoin mining with Ryan McLeod, aka Nuclear Bitcoiner on Twitter. Now, nuclear is something that's been coming up more and more in the conversations as people talking about energy and the energy mix, climate change. And uh, whilst within the Bitcoin community, there's certainly not consensus on climate change and what is causing it, whether it's real. What do we do with the energy mix? But one thing that is pretty consistent is that people believe there should be more use of nuclear energy. And this is something, especially across Europe, but even something in California, we have seen nuclear facilities be decommissioned and a lack of investment in this area, which is causing problems. We're seeing this now across Europe with this reliance upon natural gas from Russia that we have seen a massive increase in energy prices. So look, nuclear is something I want to learn a lot more about. This is a starting point for me to learn a bit more about this. We talk about using nuclear energy for mining, which is pretty rad, really, if you ask me. But I'm not done with this topic. I've got some plans to get a nuclear engineer on the show in the, new, in the near future because I want to learn a lot more about how the fuck this stuff works. Like, I want to know about how a nuclear power station works, how nuclear energy is created, because, look, I don't get it, and I think it's a very cool subject. So I hope you enjoy this one. As ever, if you've got any questions about it, you can reach out to me. Just drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Ryan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, man. How are you? I am great. Thanks for coming all the way to Bedford to do this interview. Yeah, it was uh, quite the trip. My first time actually leaving Canada on an international flight, so that was quite exciting. Yeah, uh, Daddy told me. Daddy told me this yesterday. I was like, "What? You've never been on a plane before?" No, I was very excited when you invited me here. So I was like, "Why not? Sounds like a cool adventure." I've got so many questions on that. I won't spend too long on it, but um, the whole airport experience uh, is just a natural experience when you've when you've done it a lot and you've done it as a kid, but. That was your first time, I guess, in an airport departure lounge? Yeah. It, like going through security wasn't as bad as I had anticipated. Like I work on a nuclear research site, so <laughs> yeah. I go through security every day. So yeah. it's pretty much the same. Was there any part of it that was like a bit weird? You're like, this is odd. Just lots of people. It was it was just interesting watching all the people coming and going because I was I got there way in advance of when I needed to so that I didn't have to deal with any of the hassle. So I just got to hang out and, and just watch people mosey around. How early were you at the airport? Like six hours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, was, I was crazy early. Rookie. <laughs> but yeah, I didn't want to take the chance. I heard all the horror stories about how Canadian airports right now. So I was just like, just get there early. Don't even worry about that's, it. That's airport rookie. Uh, so if I was, what would you do if you were there six hours early, Danny? Drink. Did you drink? I had a few drinks. I went, had some food and I just 
I'd listened to some podcasts, reviewed my notes. I think I'd, if I got there six hours early, I think it'd be less likely to make my flight than if I got there two hours early. <laughs> yeah, less likely to be allowed to get on your flight. Yeah. <laughs> Danny's a lightweight. <laughs> First time taking off, what was that like? That was quite the rush. It's wild, right? Oh, yeah. It's weird because I've done it so many times, I don't think about it to... Uh, to then sit, sit with somebody who's not been on a plane before is uh, it's quite the experience. All right, man. Anyway, listen, uh, thank you so much for coming all the way here. Uh, you can't be a Bitcoiner without um, uh, trying to spend some time understanding energy. It's a topic that comes up a lot for, for a number of reasons, um, but primarily because there is a FUD that comes out with regards to energy or the use of energy by Bitcoiners. And sometimes it's... Uh, uh, misleading and disingenuous or sometimes it's concerns over the growth in energy but uh, with that we've all um, well a lot of us have spent some time trying to understand the energy market particularly in texas uh, a lot of us are aware of some of the projects that happen at ERCOT. and but at the same time i've also had alex epstein on my podcast discussing ideas with regards to um, energy and if we were to curtail the use of fossil fuels what the impact on uh, humans would be, but I also had Andrew Desler on the show talking about uh, the issues with climate change and, and the risks with that. Um, there seems to be a broad set of people with a broad set of opinions, uh, some who don't believe climate change is an issue or that we can mitigate it, but at the same time with those who do understand there's issues with energy and energy production and climate, the topic that comes up a lot is nuclear. And I don't know enough about it. Yeah, nuclear is very exciting right now. Well, with when the uh, cost of uh, natural gas and oil is skyrocketing, that renews the attention on the nuclear sector, which in many places hasn't been doing so well over the last few years. Like that's what triggered me to start talking about this. I was listening to the way that Bitcoiners were talking about nuclear and they were seeing the perspective in the American nuclear industry where lots of reactors are being shut down and the industries atrophying their supply chain isn't as robust as it used to be but then my perspective in canada from working at the the research facility i get an inside view of the progress of where we're going with small modular reactors and refurbishing our existing can-do fleet and it's very exciting the potential that's growing throughout this decade to build a very wide range of different types of reactors to be deployed to domestically, internationally. Like Canada is poised to be a world leader in this technology. Like we have the full supply chain and we could, yeah, we could kick ass really. Well, good. Oh, all right. Well, I've got a lot of questions. I want to, I want to know everything. Um, I want to know how reactors work. I want to know about the risks. Um, before we get into that, let's do two things. Firstly, can you just explain to everyone where it is you work, what it is specifically that you do, and what it is the company you work for does. Yeah, I work at Canadian Nuclear Laboratories. That's Canada's premier nuclear research facility, and it supports the entire CANDU fleet, uh, does research on medical isotopes and various other uh, peripheral technologies that can support the nuclear technology, like um, hydrogen production development and different uh, thermal storage technologies. So there's tons of research going on on all those fronts. Um, specifically what I do, I'm a lab technologist and I operate a lab that supports the CANDU pressure tube safety surveillance program just by analyzing the, the hydrogen corrosion of the zirconium pressure tubes that are used in the uh, CANDU reactors because the, the heavy water 
corrodes the, the zirconium over the course of a few decades and the risk of embrittlement cause, can cause a potential issue that I believe there was an incident that happened back in the 70s in the Pickering reactor where the moderator water leaked into the, um, the cooling water and it wasn't a major incident, but it was easily mitigated. And now that factor is constantly monitored. Like every year, the reactors shut down temporarily, take these samples, send them to our laboratory, and then we tell them how much hydrogen is in the zirconium. And they use those numbers to determine how much longer life the uh, reactor pressure tubes have. Amazing. How did you end up doing this? I was just uh, educated as a chemical technologist and I had been laid off at the time and I just ended up like getting a job at the, the nuclear labs. I just applied for a chemical position. How, how big is the site? How many people work there? About 3,000. And that's, uh, that's not at a reactor or is there a reactor there? There is a reactor, but it is shut down. It was retired in 2018. That okay. was the... Uh, the NRU research reactor that was built in, I think, uh, 1947. So there, there's a few other smaller research reactors on site that are used for various projects. But our uh, future intent is to build one of the demonstration small modular reactors on our site. So to get that, to get that ball rolling, it's, it's, we, we, we need to demonstrate the small modular reactors before they can go into wide commercial deployment. Right. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep an eye on that because I want to come back to the small modular reactors. And also, just tell me your Bitcoin sort of story. Well, like, where did this all converge? Well, I had been aware of Bitcoin since fairly early on. Like, I had uh, watched various documentaries, like Zeitgeist, so learning about um, how money works and fractional reserve banking, and you go down all those rabbit holes. And then some of the content that I was interested in, occasionally Max Kaiser would come up when he was evangelizing way in the early days and then life moved on i got caught up more with like culture war type of events and like gamergate and the and then all the craziness with trump in america it was it was just fascinating times to pay attention to but then yeah i wasn't really paying much attention to bitcoin and i think it was just about four or five years ago i had a little bit of money that i cashed out of an online poker site and i they had Bitcoin as an option, so I just cashed it out into a wallet and forgot about it. And then when the price ran up last January, I started to take more of an interest when a few hundred dollars was now worth a few thousand dollars. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I jumped right back in and Max was my first touch point. So I went straight into the Orange Pill podcast, like right off the deep end. And then was listening to him talking about guys like Michael Saylor. And then that led me to uh, Breedlove's podcast and Safety's podcast. And then it was when I had listened to two podcasts in quick succession with Steve Barber and Adam O, where they were talking about what they were doing with the flared gas. And then that developed a really strong interest in me in how it, the Bitcoin mining relates to energy infrastructure. And then it was in March or so when the price dumped because some, well, an eccentric billionaire that we don't need to even name was uh, ranting about Bitcoin's energy use. And then the price dumped. And then she just randomly threw out this idea. I was like, well, we're going to build SMR. I was like, why don't we mine Bitcoin with SMRs? That sounds like a great idea. And she just went about what she was doing and thought nothing of it. And then I just stood there. I was like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Someone needs to be promoting that. And then I started looking out in the community and nobody was promoting that. So 
I started to become the guy that was promoting that. And then I jumped on Twitter by May and started pushing the idea out there and grow my influence and clout in the Bitcoin Twitter space and start poking guys like Foss and, and Harry Tsudik and just get their uh, interest in the idea. And then it was in July, this North American young generation and nuclear group that I'm a part of being in the nuclear industry, they proposed a competition called Innovation for Nuclear, which was very coming up with ideas to support nuclear assisting in the UN sustainability development goals. And like nuclear on its own and the small modular reactors have great potential to apply to all the UN sustainability goals. But then applying Bitcoin mining to the SMRs will significantly improve the economics of deploying these reactors, which will in turn make them even better at applying to the UN sustainability goals. And then you find yourself in Bedford making a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the first podcast I got invited onto the Compass podcast. And then, mm -hmm. uh, and then we did one with the full team. Uh, I think it was Young Professionals in Energy. That's hosted by Mark Hinneman. And then I did one with BTC Sessions and then the Canadian Bitcoiners. And yeah, now I'm here in Bedford with you. Amazing. Well, this is very cool. I'm uh, really glad you're part of this Bitcoin community now and, and out here sharing your knowledge. Um, as I said, I'm, I want to know everything. I, I want to know, talk to me, how, how the hell does a nuclear reactor work? How does it make energy? Talk to me through the physics of it all. It's just a giant boiler. It just takes advantage of the fact that when nuclear fission occurs, uh, heavy molecules like uranium or plutonium break apart and release lots of energy. And that, that's captured in various mediums. Typically, it's heavy water or light water. or Yeah, heavy water in the can-do reactors, light water for most of the other boiled water reactors throughout the world. Uh, there's also molten salt is one of the mediums. Uh, gas and graphite are two other options and it just runs that through a, a heat exchanger to generate steam steam turns a turbine turbine generates electricity it's very similar to um hydropower in that it turns a turbine right yeah except you have to generate the steam first yeah the hydro is more just passive using the run of the the flow of the river right but but how does it actually how does it actually work? Like, talk to me. So, through uranium, how does it get broken apart? Like, how does that work? When uranium is configured in a specific orientation and then it's bombarded with neutrons, it will reach uh, a criticality. So, so criticality basically means that it's generating more heat than is can being consumed, or well, it's it's releasing more neutrons than are being consumed, and then those neutrons will split and uh, I think it's three neutrons will be released for each uranium that uh, is broken apart. And then they have, um, to, in order to maintain criticality, they need to keep that at one. So, so they have moderators and that will absorb two out of those three neutrons so that uh, otherwise you could reach super criticality and that's, that's bad. Bad. Because you don't want, you don't want too much. And then, cause that's how, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. like trying to visualize like, when you're building like, it. Because like I'm not a nuclear physicist myself. Like I'm just a chemical technologist. So I've been just going off the deep end learning as much as I can for myself. But it's when uranium breaks apart, releases neutrons, and then those neutrons scatter and then break apart the next uranium. And then it just keeps cascading through the reactor. So, so they have to absorb enough neutrons so that the 
that it doesn't go over critical, but then they have to make sure that they're not absorbing too many neutrons, that it stays at the right criticality level. Because if it goes subcritical, then it'll wind down and and it won't be sustain the uh, the fission reactions. Right. Oh, so the criticality is like the, the reactions to keep going, keep happening. Yeah, you just want to find that sweet spot. And what, what the hell is heavy water? Heavy water is just, it's water that has the hydrogen is deuterium. Which is, deuterium is just hydrogen with a neutron on it because standard hydrogen is just a proton and electron, but deuterium is a proton and a neutron and with still the same electron. And then there's also tritium, which has two neutrons, which is even less less common occurring naturally, but it does get produced in the process of uh, nuclear fission. And why does it take so long to build these uh, nuclear reactors? Because there's a robust regulatory environment that ensures that they are incredibly safe so that there is minimal risk of an accident. But adhering to those regulatory requirements requires a lot of upfront capital and a lot of licensing and environmental assessments. And those processes can take as much as 10 years before a reactor can get greenlit. Holy shit. Yeah. But once you get over that hurdle, especially with SMRs that are going to be built in a fleet design, then you can just start pumping them out like mad. Like you'll have specific geographies that you'll need to do environmental assessments. But once the licensing is done and all the regulatory uh, requirements are are overcome, then then we just start building them. Oh, so the re- most of the regulatory requirements are for a specific design of a reactor. Yeah. So right now in Canada, there's 12... I think 12 small modular reactor designs being proposed to come to market. And there's probably going to be five or six that get chosen at various sizes from one megawatt to 300 megawatts, depending on the application of on-grid, uh, heavy industry or off-grid. And, and is it individual companies pitch the designs and then certain then companies choose to take those designs and, designs and construct from them? Yeah. Yeah, like we've got uh, G Hitachi's uh, is working with the Darlington site. New Scale's working with the Pickering site. Moltex is working with the Point Lepro site. Uh, we've got Global First Power is working with the CNL site. Uh, I believe there's more out there from like Arc Energy, X Energy, Terrestrial, Starcore, Westinghouse. There's, there's various proposals. Yeah, so there, at the moment there's only five, maybe six that have been the deals that have been announced. But there's probably going to be more because the, the goal is to, the first initial goal is to get the demonstration reactors built. And then once that's done, we can overcome that chicken and egg regulatory issue and start building them yeah, commercially and potentially for export as well. So the construction regulations, are they Canada specific or is that to do with, I know there's the like international nuclear, whatever it is. Um, is it an international set of standards or is it? Yeah, the the international atomic, atomic energy, energy yeah, or yeah, they have international standards, and then Canada has the Canadian Nuclear uh, Safety Committee. That's the, the CNSC is our domestic regulatory body, and pretty much the the goal is to get it as standardized across the world as possible. Like that, Russia has their own re, uh, regulatory bodies. <laughs> the U.S. has the we love that. Yeah, the, U, the U.S. <laughs> has the NRC. Well, Rosatom actually like they're. They have uh, lots of customers lined up to get their reactors. The Russian right ones. Yeah. Yeah, there's mm. well, there's countries throughout Africa and the Middle East and Asia that are interested in nuclear that they, they don't really care what Russia's up to. 
Wow. We could, we could, we could talk about that. Separately. Yeah, that's, that, yeah that's, <laughs> uh, that gets into complex geopolitical things. Yeah, but, and, but they are definitely our competitor because Russia and China are Canada's main competitors in the SMR game for international deployment. And, and will the SMR um, modules, when they're created and they're approved, Will that wipe out any need to build these larger reactors? Is, is that the death of those? Is the desire just to only have SMRs? Not necessarily. Like there's there's potentially room for all the different types. Like there's still uh, like the UAEs just built a, a few large reactors. The Hinkley Point C is almost almost finished in the UK. I think there's the the reactors in Georgia that have been taking a while, but they're. Uh, they're almost finished. Taking a while because I mean, like fifteen years. When uh, you say like the small reactors, how like what is the scale compared to like a, a normal nuclear reactor? Uh, the term small modular reactor applies to reactors that are less than three hundred megawatts. Like the conventional reactors are in like 600, 700 megawatt units, right. and they they benefit from the economies of scale, so they can have a wider customer base to uh, share the risk of the costs with. Well, I, I have no idea what that amount of power, how many people that services. So if you had a, you know, one of these SMRs, I mean, how many would we need in the UK to serve 70 million people? Well, it depends because they, it would be locally dependent. Like, so, and it's, it's the difference is you can build one large reactor and then all the transmission infrastructure to get it to the customers, or you can build the SMRs in like hyper local grids to, you have a look at how much grid the UK grid uses. I'd love to. I guess you might have an idea of what the Canada grid uses. Does Canada have a single grid? Because it's quite a. It's pretty spread out. Yeah. yeah, there's there's lots of like as soon as you start getting further north, it's it gets pretty remote, and there's a lot of off grid that depends on diesel. That that and that's that's the goal of the SMR action plan for off grid is to get get remote communities off of diesel, upgrade them to nuclear with these small modular reactors. Okay. But I can't imagine the construction of a small modular modular reactor is going to be cheap. Have they? What's like the estimated cost? The first of a kind reactors are going to be in the orders of like yeah, several hundreds of millions, a few billion. But the expected cost of once once the technology is mature, that that'll the cost will be cut in half because once. Once the manufacturing facilities are built and all of the supply chains are developed and the expertise is is aligned, the, the, that will significantly drive the cost down as more reactors are deployed. But yeah, getting it over those initial hurdles is going to be quite costly and require like public-private risk sharing and yeah. capital investment. And so it says uh, Greater London uses just under forty thousand gigawatt hours. Uh, so it says it could be supplied by uh two or so like large nuclear power plants okay so that'd be like four smrs De- depends on the type of smr if you're going with a 300 megawatt unit then yeah but if you want to apply it to like a, a small community that only needs 15 to 20 megawatts you can bu- you can build either a few of the really small reactors that are going to be in the 10 megawatt range oh you can build like tiny versions of these yeah yeah that's that's right. the point like because we're going to have we're, we want to build some that are in the one to 10 megawatt range in the like 50 to 150 megawatt range, and then like the 200 to 300 megawatt range. So we'll have a wide variety of applications that these reactors can be applied to. So the the smaller ones, one to 10 megawatts, uh, what kind of size geography do they need? Like a track field 
hockey arena. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, not, not much. Okay. And do they know the construction time on something like that? They're expecting the smaller ones to be in the orders of like one to two years. And then the larger ones being like the five years ballpark. So it's really important to get through that regulatory process then. Absolutely. Yeah. And are there enough people out there who are available to be able to work, to construct these, to work at these? Well, that is that another thing that has to be worked on to train people up? Yeah. In many jurisdictions, that is the case. That's that's why it is being so costly to uh, to build the uh, the Hinkley reactor and the, uh, the Vogel reactor in Georgia for the UK and the US markets because they let their supply chain atrophy by not building or refurbishing any of the reactors for decades. Whereas in Canada, we are actively refurbishing our reactors right now. The Darlington has undergone refurbishment. The Point La Pro reactor has undergone refurbishment. Bruce reactor is currently under refurbishment. So this will extend the life of those reactors for at least another four decades. What's involved in refurbing it? Is it essentially using the site to put, put in new technology? Yeah, a lot of the parts in these reactors are interchangeable. They can just be replaced with, with new parts and like the, the pressure tubes just get replaced with fresh zirconium pressure tubes and, and they, yeah, they, they replace the, um, the turbines if, if they need to. Just any, anything that's starting to show its age just gets replaced. But the, the core of the reactor pretty much remains unchanged. And how, how much time goes into refurbing a reactor as, as opposed to like building one from scratch? Uh, each reactor probably takes like two to three years. To refurb? Yeah. Okay. And that has the advantage of like sustaining our supply chain and our, our workforce and, and, and making sure that the, uh, yeah, the industry is, remains robust and doesn't lose our expertise. So why has there been so much of a slowdown in uh, the development of, of nuclear reactors and the, you know, essentially the decommissioning of reactors. We know Germany has been doing it. We know, I think there's one in California, but we have less nuclear power now, right, than we did two, three decades ago. Is that correct? I believe so, but that in, especially in the West. But then yeah, yeah, countries like the, the UAE, they're, they went all out. They're building several, I think like four or five gigawatts worth of nuclear. I think they, they just fired up the first one and there's three more set to to go over the next three years and they're they're working with the south korean design right uh, can you have a look at how much power the uae uses because i'm wondering if if four is enough to provide them all the energy they need well i think these are like 700 800 megawatt units and and they build them in um like each reactor facility will have like four units in in one uh housing facility this is uh, from 2013. It says the and it, electricity demand in the UAE has reached 105 billion kilowatt hours. Right. I don't I, know. Those numbers just mean nothing to me. Yeah, they mean nothing. Yeah, that. yeah. The, the, it's it's hard to make sense of these these numbers unless you're deeply entrenched in energy. They they're go, they intend to like overbuild their capacity, use it for uh, like desalination operations, water treatment, chemical processes, uh, hydrogen production. There's there's all kinds of high intense energy applications that that nuclear is going to apply to, including Bitcoin mining. Ha. Okay, so sorry, so these sites are used more for more than just the production of energy because they use the heat too. Like because you can you can uh, instead of running the heat the steam through a turbine, you can direct that heat into uh, various chemical processes and 
and you and use it for that and for various industries that use uh that need high quality steam to run their operations what, what can you give me some examples of that uh like ammonia production uh hydrogen production just various just all kinds of uh synthetic fuels like uh methanol there's going to be quite a few and then it can also be used in like uh uh, mineral refining processes, uh, just mining in general. Uh, they want to use them for the uh, the oil sands in Alberta to get them off of natural gas, and that will dramatic because they can provide both electricity and the steam to the uh, to the oil sands operations. I'm pleased to welcome my new sponsor, Leaden, to the podcast. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They're also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Nevera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Glastine, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Next up, it is Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S Plus. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P, Dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Also, today we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. 
And if you want to find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And remember, please gamble responsibly. It's wild how, um, yeah, for so long, there seems to have been this kind of, uh, I don't know, it's like a aversion to nuclear power. Yet there's all this kind of like amazing technology that's been developed to uh, expand its use. Yeah, there's a very strong and well-funded anti-nuclear activist lobby that uh, has been has had a lot of momentum for the last few decades, and then they they really ram home the Chernobyl and Fukushima as a reminder that nuclear power is bad. But you could like there's been other chemical accident, plant accidents, and various incidences that dwarf the amount of devastation caused by the nuclear accidents. Like that explosion that happened in Beirut a few years ago, like that was more devastating than all of the nuclear disasters combined. Really. Yeah, like oh, I guess thousands so, yeah. of people died in that. But Did they thousands? Can you at, at least yeah. at least a few hundred? Like it was right in the middle of a port yeah, in a I mean, major city. I remember and seeing, it, it. and it was just it was just fertilizer that was left unattended for probably at least a few years, decades. I remember seeing the footage of that. It was wild. It says at least two hundred and eighteen deaths, and so we know Fukushima. seven thousand injuries. Wow! And cost, say the cost of the damage. Property damage, 15 plus billion. Holy shit. In a country that cannot afford it. Um, That's interesting because uh, I heard recently that only one person died at Fukushima and that's been contested. And the number, I can't remember the number for um, Chernobyl, but I've got a feeling it's like 24. Yeah, it's like a few dozen. 28. Uh, Yeah, there's, there's only a few dozen that can be directly attributed to radiation. Actual deaths. Yeah. But hmm. like, approximately thirty. Like, approximately thirty. I wonder if that's people who they're talking about people who died immediately. From immediately, blast yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering how, like, because there must have been an increase in cancers. It said in the seconds to months after the disaster. Um, oh, actually, this isn't it. Yeah, I think maybe it says sixty, but I don't know how they even. Pull that but even there. that, because if, if you didn't know, if somebody said to you, Danny, like prior to all this, how many people do you think? were killed as a result of Chernobyl. I would have yeah, said thousands. You'd guess at least. I'd assume yeah. thousands got cancers and yeah, died. The way, the way that it gets hyped up, that is what a lot of people believe if they're not properly educated on on the topic. With Chernobyl, what what happened? What what caused that? I mean, outside of, you, know, you can place accusations on Soviet Russia and uh, you know, incompetent uh, management and processes, but like, what was the actual cause of the meltdown? I believe they were doing a test that required them to turn off some of their safety mechanisms. I think they were trying to see what would happen when they would just let the reactor wind down naturally. But from what I understand, there was a lot of stored energy in the the graphite that's that's used to contain the reactor. And then something happened and then it created a steam explosion and... Then it, uh, it just went, once the steam explosion blew out the uh, the reactor core, then that that caused wider issues with releasing the uh, the radiation from inside of the reactor. It could have been a lot worse, though, right? Um, oh yeah. We know of is it the three guys who had to swim under, and there was like something to do with under. There was like a something was leaking. I seem to remember it from. I don't know if I remember it from reading about it. Or it was from the document, uh, not the documentary. Did you watch the series, the Chernobyl series? I have not actually watched that one. Oh, it's incredible. It's Yeah, it's brilliant. It's well worth watching. But uh, my understanding of Chernobyl is that there 
it could have been a lot worse. Yes, yes. Whereas Fukushima was is, is Fukushima slightly different is that it was more because of its location with regards to like it's, the earthquake. And- it's also hard to quantify like how the, the cost of Chernobyl being basically a wasteland ever since. Well, the immediate cleanup. Well, and- what a lot of people actually don't know about Chernobyl is that there was two other reactors on that site that continued operating for another decade. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, they, they kept them going. And now the area around Chernobyl is quite the robust uh, wildlife preserve that's been doing quite well from what Three I understand. Fish. Three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that uh, Simpsons did not do a good job of uh, promoting the nuclear industry. <laughs> but actually that's something I've, I was told is that... That's this, what Harry Suddick said. Yeah, Harry Suddick. Was it Harry? Harry yeah. said the Simpsons actually has a re- had a real negative, like it's been really bad for the nuclear industry. Well, because it, it had imagery of like Mr. Burns storing barrels of green goop in a neighborhood park and like just crap like that it just it just throws off people's perspective and they see like the green fuel rods it's like it it's yeah it's not not like that at all um so with what we'll separate chernobyl and fukushima with what happened at chernobyl what is the risk of uh similar kind of meltdowns or uh, it's reactors now i mean are they so safe that it's almost impossible to happen Kandu reactors are the safest design in the world. From what I understand, they have at least three, maybe I think four fail safes that will re- result in them. If, if an incident were to happen, that, that the reactor would be shut down and they would, uh, there's different, they would drop the moderator um, rods in and that would re- reduce the criticality of the reaction and, and slow down the production of neutrons. Or if it was even if it was worse, they have a, a chemical poison that would be dropped into the reactor that would completely cease all reactivity within the reactor. But the the difference between those two applications is if you just have to drop the moderator rods, like that can be that's an easily recoverable situation. Whereas if you have to completely poison the reactor chemistry, you have a very costly uh, process of recovering from that because. Because the the entire like the, the reactor chemistry needs to be reconfigured from scratch. Right. So that's a last last kind of case scenario. Yeah. But Emergency. like that's it's incredibly unlikely for that to even occur. Like these reactors are built like with def- defense in depth so of for all their safety measures. That the the likelihood of them even coming close to that situation is incredibly rare, but it's required to have that backup just in case that incredibly rare event were ever to happen like in fukushima they did not expect to get hit by an earthquake and then a tsunami and then had they had their backup generators at a higher elevation they would have been able to sustain uh cooling power to the reactor that would have prevented the reactor from going critical and releasing radiation into the environment yeah so how does that actually happen how does radiation get into the environment what's gone wrong at that point well, it's mostly like from the steam explosions because that just releases a lot of a lot of energy. But that steam is in the vicinity of nuclear material, fissile material, so it will carry with it the fissile material that and then release that into the atmosphere, like stuff like cesium and then tritium in the water. But if if um, if radiation is so dangerous um, and it was released into the atmosphere at Fukushima and, and certainly at Chernobyl. Um, are the risks of radiation overstated? They are. The radiation, like the, from the, the reactor accidents, like 
the the really dangerous nucleides that come out of an accident are very short-lived so they're only dangerous for a very short time like a few months to a few years i mean i wouldn't say a few years is a short time <laughs> true well relative to the grand scheme of things so like, why have they stayed out of like Chernobyl for so long just perspective just or public perception just everyone just scared of the situation because it was was very very hyped up as as a scary situation and they did to build a massive iron dome to put over it right yeah they they entombed it in a large yeah they just dumped concrete in there and just why did they do that just to contain it because well concrete uh has good uh, moderating properties to absorb neutrons so it re really prevents the the any potential of a criticality accident from reoccurring if there is any radioactive fissile material still present at the site. So you would say then, therefore, nuclear uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a, a source for energy generation is what the safest or one of the safest? Per kilowatt hour generated? Yeah. So, so the, uh, the lobbyists, the people who are against nuclear, what is their, if, you know, try and put yourself in their shoes of their rational arguments. What are their rational arguments against nuclear? It's expensive. It takes a long time to build. And when there is an accident, it is incredibly sensational. But, but, but expensive is a problem that can be solved through economies of scale. Yeah. The length of time to create, I mean, if you, if you want this sort of energy, you've got to start at some point. And again, that will become more efficient over time. So I, I, thinking more with regards to their concerns with regards to danger in the environment. So these people who are uneducated? Some of the older reactor designs, like their their concerns were a lot were more founded, but as the technology has matured, they they haven't really seemed to update to keep up with it. So they still repeat the same talking points that they did in the eighties. Which were? Which just it's it's dangerous, expensive it takes forever to build. But what like, is the danger in the old reactors? It's just that they they don't have a, they don't fail into a safe state if something were to go wrong. They're, they they require active measures to shut down the reactor if it goes uh, super critical. The the other thing would be the waste, right? Yes, waste is the other issue which it's a not a large footprint that the waste takes up because of the the huge density of of uh uranium, the energy density. Um, but we do have several proposed ideas of how to manage that waste. One of them being a deep geological repository. I think they've started building one in Finland and there's proposals for various sites in Canada to, to build them as well. It's just, they're limestone caverns that have uh, the appropriate geography that water does not pass through at a very quick rate. These these uh, formations have existed already for tens of thousands of years and they don't expect any changes in them for another um, tens of thousands of years. And like I said, like when, react, when fuel is pulled out of a reactor and it's radiated, the primary hazard is in the first few years when there's the, the more dangerous nucleides present. So the waste, is this the rods themselves uh, uh, once they've been you know, fully used? or Is there a green goo of some kind? No, it's... It's, I wish there was a grid. Yeah, well, like the most liquid radiological waste is, is the tritium that comes out of these. But there's potential, like tritium is potentially going to be the fuel for uh, fusion reactors. 
okay, we'll come back to that future reality. I'll stick with fission for the moment. Yeah. Um, so is there more than one type of waste? There's the rods themselves? There's the rods themselves that are potentially fissile. They need to be stored in lead casks. When they're pulled out of the reactor, they're kept in, in, um, in uh, large pools that are to keep them cool while, they're, while the, uh, the harmful nucleides slowly decay. And then once they reach the, a certain threshold where they're determined to be safe to handle, they get stored in uh, lead casks. Not drums. No. There are no drums anywhere with nuclear waste, maybe in Russia. You know, they, they like, uh, there was a good podcast recently, uh, Dr. Chris Kiefer on the Decoupled podcast, he was talking with Mark Nelson about uh, the, uh, the um, deep geological repositories that are being built in Canada. So where are they currently stored? Most of them just remain on site because they don't take up much space. So, but the plan is to to move them into the repositories once the facilities are built. But then that's another chicken and egg thing. You got to go through all the licensing and regulatory, and and there has to be community buy-in from the communities that these things are going to be hosted in because they're uh, one is being proposed on the Bruce Peninsula near the Bruce reactor, and another more further out in northern Ontario in uh, Ignace. I'm going to make Jeremy proud now because they covered this in The Fifth Risk. <laughs> uh, have you heard of the book, The Fifth Risk? Nope. It's a book I read a while back, which I, I seem to bring up in every show after that point. But they talked about um, the differences between the US and Russia and how they uh, deal with uh, spent uh, fusion materials. And uh, uh, I think they talked in Russia, they just pour concrete over it. But there's certain uh, regulations, for example, in the U.S. with regards to how it's stored and where it's stored. But they also talked about the amount of, uh, I, want to, I want to say something like all the uh, nuclear waste in the world that's ever been created would be like smaller than a football field or something. Yeah, it would be a f- well, like one football field stacked a few telephone, like two telephone poles high. That's about it. I think that's about what I heard. But if we were to increase the number of uh, reactors, that would go up. So we would need some. Potentially. But the beauty of some of these new reactors is that some of them will be able to use that reprocessed fuel as their fuel to operate. Huh. So you can reuse. Why, yeah. How can you reuse it? Um, the conventional reactors only get about 5 maybe 10% of the available energy out of the uranium in the fuel rods. Huh. because of their their designs and then if they the they want to use a process called pyroprocessing where they dissolve the spent fuel rods into a molten salt and then use an electrolytic process to to purify it to just the the fissile material that's required for for a, a generating reactor and then that will be able to get potentially another 70 to 80 maybe even 90% of the energy out of the these potential out of these uh, spent fuel and then that will reduce them to a lot safer nucleides that aren't as long-lived and mostly inert salts that can be stored safely like any other industrial um, output. And the the water, the heavy water, the tritium did you call it? Yeah well tritium's like well heavy water is Two is one is proton and a neutron. Tritium is proton two neutrons. But the yeah. wastewater does that have to be stored in lead caskets or? Well, that that typically that gets yeah that gets stored in drums and then it gets. There's our drums. Yes, that that will be stored in drums. And is it green goo? No, it's just water. Fuck's sake! You wouldn't you wouldn't even know. And it's and honestly, 
They should have it's, agreed to it. It's not as harmful as, as people are led to believe. Like the solution, like if you accidentally consumed tritium, the solution is buy a case of beer and take a leak. It'll just flow. Really? Yeah, it's, well. Is, should we do it? Not, I don't recommend it, but <laughs> but it, it, in in incidents where where it has happened, it's just, it, it flows through your body so quickly that you just have to overhydrate yourself and just flush it out. With beer. I, well, beer, beer is never going to hydrate well, myself. Beer, beer, water, just just something that's going to make you pee. Okay. Whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I'm fucked out of whiskey. Just, just just flush it through your system as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, so everything you're explaining to me is like, well, this is just a no-brainer. Is it? Uh, is there enough uranium in the world? Well, where the hell do we get uranium from? There's tons of uranium. Like Canada is the second largest uranium exporter in the world. And then there's like uh, Russia has some uranium. There's uranium mines in Kazakhstan. There's there's uranium mines in. I don't know if Australia's mines are still operating because they're in a weird state with their nuclear uh, industry. Mm. They, they they just elected a green party, didn't they? Yeah. Well, they 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 swore they're not, not the greens. No, no, but a very green. Yeah. They're like they yeah. campaigned on a green issues yeah. didn't they well the great barrier reef's the big problem there because it's dying so they have, that's like such a buzzword for any, anyone in australia isn't that bleaching yeah, from yes yeah. is that from sunlight or is the water getting too hot the water's getting too hot i, think. I, don't, I don't how are they going to cool down the water <laughs> well that's well. a good question I, you can well, also do what, things like plant coral that helps it grow back and stuff okay. i did re, there was a report that came out recently that was saying that the great barrier reef has made quite a resurgence recently so it's not is that as, true I, it could well be. I, I mean, they do do, they have like processes in place where they can try and rebuild it, but I've been and it's pretty white. Oh, really? Have you, have you dived in it? Yeah. Have you been to the bits that aren't white? We've been, oh, I don't know. It's huge. I, and I don't know where's good and where's bad, but. Was it good where, where I went. you went? I mean, the fish were good, but the coral wasn't. It was pretty white. What is it normally? Just like a plethora of colors? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you don't see all the colors that well through like your human eyes because it doesn't go through the water very well or something. But where I was, it was very white. Right. And that's that's a massive issue for Australians. Well, yeah, I mean it's a landmark, massive landmark, isn't it? But it's interesting that you can win an election with that as one of the primary. Well, things. I mean, I think if you ran on green in the UK or in the US, you'd also, as in like green policies, you'd also do probably pretty well. Yeah, I don't know, not as well. Um, okay, so with regards to the actual industry and the production, how much uh, work is there, like how competitive is it between different uh, companies who want to build them or is there a lot of collaboration? It's a mixed bag. Like historically, like yeah, nuclear utilities are in competition with each other to get the access to market share. But now it seems that there's a lot more collaboration, mostly surrounding the... Um, the climate change mitigation and everyone everyone is on the same team in regards to doing what they can for for that not everyone no not everyone but yeah we get we get into arguments well with wind and solar people all the time because they think that they that we can power the entire world with 100% wind and solar which i think is insane but yeah i think that's pretty obvious now going down that rubber hole it's become kind of obvious. Like as of. as soon as wind and solar start penetrating up fifteen to twenty percent in a grid, it starts to have serious negative cost effects because they they overproduce when you don't need them to, and without massive storage capabilities, they that's where they, the miners come in, buddy. Feasible. Yeah, 
that is where the miners come in. So if you were to consider like a, a kind of a grid, a perfect kind of grid scenario, do you think there's a role for Windows Solar or is it is there no role? It's geographically dependent. Okay. Like in Northern Canada, building solar panels is pretty much useless. <laughs> but but, but a, wind is applicable. I had a story when I was in Canada and I met a guy who works up on the uh, one of the oil places when they go mine the oil and he his job is to go out and um, do repairs but he said during the coldest parts of winter you can't go outside for more than like half an hour because like your eyelids freeze over was, <laughs> yeah. that, was he just scaring me is that true oh no that that that's legit like as soon as you start getting up in like northern manitoba saskatchewan alberta it it gets cold at the peak of winter like minus 50 type of cold have you been there no <laughs> no like where, where i'm it peaks like our our coldest will touch minus 40 on on some days but it, uh mostly in the mid-20s it's trudeau pro nuclear house because he's um he seems to have some quite weird policy ideas he's very much leaning more towards the green technologies like especially the environment minister in canada he's more towards the wind solar renewable types he's not a big fan of nuclear but then our uh the labor minister is a big fan of nuclear because it's very it supports a lot of a lot of union jobs and 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 work force in canada and the general kind of population the voting public are they pro nuclear it depends who you ask and where is people in ontario that are familiar with a nuclear grid are very much pro nuclear like new brunswick as well but then you start going out to like bc and they're they're not big fans of nuclear but so it's it's a mixed bag across the board. Do you know what percentage of nuclear, uh, of energy is nuclear in Canada? Because Danny got me here, it's like 4.3% of global energy demand uh, is provided by nuclear. That I was surprised. That was lower than I expected. Mm. Has it been higher? Has it come, has oh, it come down? Up. Yeah, I'm not sure. In Canada, I think for the entire country, I think it's like 16, 17%. But then like in Ontario specifically, it's like 60%. Like Ontario is pretty much... Uh, hydro, nuclear, and then a little bit, bit of natural gas. They used to have significant coal, but then that was phased out about a decade ago. And the only way that they were able to do that was the massive nuclear assets that we have in Ontario. There's actually a bit of a conflict here. It says here on this website that nuclear energy, energy now provides about 10% of the world's electricity. Okay. What's, what's That's from worldnuclear.org. Worldnuclear.org, okay. Um, okay, talk to me about fusion because... Uh, I am uh, sometimes a bit of a nerd and read uh, geeky magazines like Focus or New Scientist. And I was recently reading uh, in New Scientist about fusion reactors and that like significant progress is starting to be made on these. And then it said, we expect the first reactor to come online in like 2056. I was like, huh, I probably won't even be alive. Yeah, it's it's a long timeline to get fusion at to a commercially deployable state. Like right now, it's still in just the demonstrating it with the... I forget what the name of that large uh, fusion reactor that they they're building. I think in France. Yes, France. Yeah. Yeah. That they, they just recently achieved the point of of producing more electricity and heat than was used to sustain the reaction. The scarf's getting in the way of this TV. Yeah, it's a good scarf, man. Is this the one? The International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Yeah. Yeah, facility in southern France. This is the one I was reading about. I hate, uh, sometimes I don't like Wikipedia as a source because they give you too much information. Yeah. Can you um, 
Can you look it up on like Google News? Oh, yes. Yeah. The Tokamak. That's the type of design that that is. Tokamak. What's that mean? Uh, that's just the name that they gave it. Yeah. So how does Fusion work? How is that different from Vision? Because my understanding is that there's no waste. Because the process of Fission is breaking apart heavy elements like uranium, plutonium, whereas the process of Fusion is combining small light elements like hydrogen and that that's the process that it's occurring in the sun and then it combines them and forms helium but when that happens that releases a massive amount of energy have you found anything on this um yeah okay european scientists say they have made a major breakthrough in their quest to develop practical nuclear fusion the energy process that powers the stars they should have said the sun come on the UK-based Jet Laboratory has smashed its own world record for the amount of energy it can extract by squeezing together two forms of hydrogen. If nuclear fusion can be successfully recreated on Earth, it holds the potential to virtually supply virtually unlimited supplies of low-carbon, low-radiation energy. The experiment produced 59 megajoules of energy over five seconds. What's 59 megajoules? Is that like power of light? That's, that's quite a bit of electricity. Okay. But, but yeah, only for... Five seconds. This so, so they weren't able to sustain it for very long. Okay, but yeah, eleven megawatts. That's oh, right. And this is more than double what was achieved in a similar test back in 1997, 25 years ago. Jeez, uh, it's not a massive energy output enough to boil about sixty kettles worth of water. But the significant significance is that it validates design choices that have been made for an even bigger fusion reactor now being constructed in France. The jet experience puts us closer to fusion power, said Dr. Joe Mills, the head of operations at the reactor lab. We've demonstrated that we can create a mini star. <laughs> That's fucking cool. We can create a mini star inside of our machine and hold it there for five seconds and get performance, which really takes us into a new realm. So this, okay, so this is how it works. Hydrogen atoms are heated, fusion reaction, helium, neutron, and energy released. Neutron energy heats water. It's pretty cool. It seems pretty simple. Yeah, the biggest obstacle is is containment because it's a lot of energy and a lot of heat. So it, it requires like a, like a magnetic field to contain it in a sustained way because it, it they're the material requirements to contain that sort of heat are uh, not are going to require some breakthroughs in order to make this feasible. This is, it, it creates like a plasma, right? Yeah, the fourth state. Yeah, yeah, um, that's cool though. It's very cool, and it's, it's going to be cool when it's done, but that's still many, many decades away. This show is brought to you by BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this like me. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Next up is my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private and I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, 
Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount and there is no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up, it's Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Also today, we have my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out. To find out more, head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. Let's bring it now back to Bitcoin. Like, what is the connection for you in this? What, this? what does this make? Why does this make it interesting for you? Well, because nuclear reactors are op- optimal economics when they can run at full capacity, at, at their maximum capacity factor. And when they aren't, when they don't have the demand to justify that, they the economics don't really justify building nuclear reactors. Like, if they... If you're running it at half capacity, the the economics just don't make sense because of the operational costs. Yeah, well, like it's it's mostly the initial capital expenditure right. and, and the cost of capital that is the biggest economic issue with the say, building once, reactors. Once it's built, once it's built, what what are your input costs? I guess staff, yeah, and running, just operational. operations and maintenance and, and fuel. Is fuel your, expensive? Is the uranium expensive? Relative to the cost of the reactor, not really. So the majority of the cost is the upfront cost. Oh, absolutely. Whereas I would guess something like natural gas and coal, you actually have a, a higher, much higher potential cost is the cost of the actual material. Yeah, especially when they're highly variable markets. Yeah. And so the price of energy from nuclear is a lot more stable. Yes. So is does mining is the is the option here with mining is that it makes the capital outlay 
it, it's going to offset the capital outlay. Yeah, it'll offset a lot of the, the uh, economic uh, liabilities that reactors are subject to. Like when, when they're over-generating, either they just curtail it and earn nothing for it, or they pay other jurisdictions to take that electricity away. So if they were to plug in Bitcoin miners to capture that, they could turn like a, a liability into a revenue stream. Is like right now in a regulated grid like Ontario, the the reactors are paid. They they get I think 8.7 cents per kilowatt hour, regardless of what the market cost of electricity is and the demand is. So when they have to curtail or sell at negative prices, they that ends up getting put on the the taxpayer because it's government subsidized. It was so. interesting what you were saying about New York last night. Yeah, because yeah, one of the reasons that New York was able to get away with shutting down the Indian Point is because they buy lots of electricity from Ontario and Quebec. Really? Yeah. Well, Quebec, a few decades ago, they overbuilt the crap out of their hydroelectric infrastructure, and that that's part of the economic profiles that they sell that to some of the uh, the northeastern states, Maine, New Hampshire. Huh. I didn't know about that at all. And New York's really weird with some of their policy decisions. They seem to be anti-everything. Yeah, the it's it's because every jurisdiction has different like political and social issues that they are concerned with. So it depends on your political leaning, really. So my um my um, one concern with Bitcoin miners supporting energy grids is that um, there's a limitation to how many different nuclear plants and grids that Bitcoin can Bitcoin mining can support because we can't have infinite Bitcoin mining. So the more people that do it, there's um you know, the more competitive it becomes and the less money more Bitcoin they will generate from those operations. But that's the game theory though. If a industry like nuclear were to go deep into Bitcoin mining, that would make the Bitcoin mining network even more robust. But and that that's saying security leads price. Well Potentially, but it's just if, as more people have confidence in the reliability of the Bitcoin network, then price potentially goes up because as demand goes up and, and and seeing more legitimate industries taking it seriously will give that sort of confidence that will drive demand potentially. Hmm. Like, like a lot of it is is just kind of playing into the game theory ideas. It's just it's it's going to be hyper competitive, but then that will drive more adoption on both fronts, on mining and just Bitcoin in general. And is the is the nuclear community that you're part of? Are they how aware are they of Bitcoin mining? Is it a growing topic? Uh, the people that I talk to, they have no idea until I bring it up to them. <laughs> like, what are they like? What the fuck are you on about, you crazy man? Pretty much, yeah. I brought up I brought up Bitcoin mining to the CEO of my company, and he was like, "What? Like you mine Bitcoin with with shovels? Like like typical <laughs> mining?" I was just like, "No, no." Dude. Like, so I had so there was a bit of explaining to to lead them down that path. That, Did you? This is my show with Adam Wright about when they were going to be uh, mining from um, uh, the methane that's extracted from uh, uh, refuse sites, like the dumps. Yeah, like that's. that's awesome. Did you hear what he said about the guy? Who said uh, so he was talking about putting Bitcoin miners there, and he said, "How do you know there's Bitcoin in these dumps?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so is there a bite from your boss? They've got somewhat of an interest. Like when you tell them that you can set a floor on the cost of energy, they they definitely perk up and they're like, "Well, how does this work? Huh, what tell, do we have to do with that?" Tell me more about this. Yeah, I want to go to a nuclear site. You just plug in. You just plug in computers and 
consuming excess electricity. And it's a completely independent market from your local grid that, that you can sell electricity to. And it spits out magic internet money. Yeah, it's money printer. Huh. Bitcoin printer. Um, so what else is coming in this kind of like area? Because it all sounds really exciting, but then I feel like we're going to be waiting 10, 20 years to actually see anything. Well, potentially the... Bitcoin mining can be plugged into the existing nuclear fleet as it is and, and shore up the economics right now because a lot of the reactors that are being shut down are because they're not economically competitive on a grid that has a large share of wind and solar because they and tend to operate at a low capacity factor when there are other intermittent sources providing electricity to these grids. That's quite interesting because you really we need wind and solar and nuclear to all sort of coexist. Yeah, but you you need something flexible that can manage that that surplus. That that's where I think the Bitcoin mining can come in. Like there's all kinds of other like the chemical operations that I described earlier, like hydrogen production, desalination. Like those those I see as more like a secondary tech um, in, industries to come in after Bitcoin mining. Like thinking of it like um, Brandon Quittam's the pioneer species idea. Like the Bitcoin comes in as the pioneer, seeds the energy resource, and then as more sophisticated energy buyers come into that market, they will push out the Bitcoin miners and then they'll to be redeployed elsewhere to other projects. The desalination is interesting because uh, my understanding of desalination is it's just so expensive. Because it takes a buttload of energy. Right. But if you've got nuclear reactors that produce both electricity and heat, they are the optimal technology to ramp up desalination technology. Talk to me about the economics and financing of this. Like, how does it all work? Is that is that the biggest roadblock? Pretty much, because the cost of capital is incredibly expensive when you have like ninety percent of your operating your your cost of building these things comes before they're even built. Right. How are they currently financed? Public private partnerships between governments and whatever private industry is is interested in the technology. I know that was a big issue with Hinkley. Danny, can you look at how Hinkley was funded? Yeah. So I know that was a massive issue with that. Yeah, like half of the cost of capital on Hinkley, from what I understand, is is just the interest on the initial investment. Oh, crap. Yeah. So um, if we can do have some way to drive down the the timeline on the return on investment, that will significantly improve the the capital requirements for these reactors because they won't you'll you'll re- recover that capital a lot faster. So you'll be paying interest for less duration. Is that what Bitcoin does? That is what I'm hoping that Bitcoin, how Bitcoin fits into this. It says here that building Britain's first nuclear reactor since 1995 will cost twice as much as the 2012 Olympics. What? How much? Uh, 20.3 billion at present. Oh, I kind of think I'd, well, I'd rather have a couple of more Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of that comes down to that uh, the workforce uh, was, was not maintained over the last few decades. So it's right. got to be, all of that's got to be completely reinvigorated from scratch. You got to rebuild your supply chains. You have to, to get, yeah, get that, get the technology rolling again. Whereas in Canada, where we have all the refurbishment plans that like, that's how we've sustained our workforce and supply chains. Oh, here we go. To pay for it, the British government has entered into a complex financial agreement with Electricité de France, EDF, the energy giant that is 87, uh, 83% owned by the French government and China General Nuclear Power Group, a state-run Chinese energy company. Under this contract, British electricity consumers will pay billions over a 35-year period, according to Gerard. Uh, we cannot be for sure that 
in 2060 or 2065, British pensioners who are currently school will not still be paying for the advancement of the nuclear industry in France. I mean, it just sounds. We have. A, I mean, this is through the Guardian too, who are probably anti-nuclear. Yeah, I'm yeah, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Um, we also have um, an ability in the UK to make everything significantly more expensive than it should be, and the final product is usually shitter. I don't know why we're so good at it, but we spend so much on our trains, and our trains are shit. <laughs> um, it's it just must be a must be our way, Danny. Yeah. Um, Ryan, do you want to, you wanted to talk through this? I think before the show. Well, yeah, yeah, that's just the, the, the general plan for the SMR action plan, what the intention is and where they want to apply the small modular reactors to just for heavy industry, oil sands, remote communities, uh, replacing coal plants. And so like, there's, there's a lot of potential for a lot of revenue in these. But I, I, like my, my take is that if we include Bitcoin mining on this, we can in, improve these timelines. We can, we can replace a lot more diesel generators because um, the North is plagued with costly energy. Like in some places where, where they have to fly in diesel, like they, they have like as much as like 90 cents kilowatt hour for their electricity, which is wow. insane. And a lot of that gets subsidized. So then those subsidies that could be going to other community development projects are just going to this black hole of just making sure that they have energy that they can afford. Yeah, so Danny's just brought up a slide. What's the slide called, Danny? I'm not, where is this actually from, Ryan? This is the from the Economics and Finance Working Group on the SMR Roadmap. So I highly recommend anybody that's interested in this stuff to read the SMR roadmap. It's it's a good 80 pages for each of the documents, but it's it's well worth getting a good lay of the land as to to what uh, what's going on, the the different uh, community engagement that's going on. Because like a lot, throughout northern Canada, there has to be very strong engagement with the uh, indigenous communities because they're going to be the ones that are going to benefit from these. But we need to make sure that they are content with the way that we're going about it, which requires significant communication and re reciprocal benefits. Yeah, so this is the macroeconomic, what did it say, action plan, Danny, or benefits, and there's a domestic market. So SMRs meet a fraction of the potential, uh, sorry, SMRs meeting a fraction of the potential can provide significant economic benefits for Canada, including up to 6,000 direct and indirect jobs per year between 2030 and 2040, and up to 10 billion in direct impacts and 9 billion in annual uh, indirect impacts over the same time frame. These are conservative estimates and do not take into account potential future use of SMR, such as power green, power and greenhouses, desalination and hydrogen production, all of which could increase the overall economic potential. So is there a lot of work that has to go into lobby to actually have this happen? Yeah. Like, well, and like right now, there's the they're trying to update all the regulatory requirements to reflect the the new SMRs because they're they are a lot safer and they're going to be smaller. So there's it's going to require different regulations than the the old reactors. But we we have the chicken and egg problem of we have to demonstrate these things and prove what they're what they're claiming before they we can really establish that regulatory framework. You need a prototype. Yes, so that's where we're where we're building at the various um, existing nuclear licensed nuclear facilities in Canada. So at at Canadian Nuclear Labs at Darlington, Pickering, Bruce, uh, Point La Pro, and potentially a few other sites may be chosen for demonstration reactors. My hope is that when they do build these demonstration reactors, they want to 
develop what's called the, the Cedar Park, the Clean Energy Demonstration Innovation and Research Facilities, where they're going to bring in peripheral technologies that will benefit from nuclear. So like all the ones that were just listed there, like hydrogen, desalination, greenhouses. And my goal is to have Bitcoin mining included in that as well to show off the the uh, economic benefits of having a price floor on your electricity. It's pretty rad. That's my hope because like the my hope is that by including Bitcoin mining, we can deploy these reactors like bigger and more and come up with a lot more de deployment scenarios where that would not have made sense otherwise because you don't potentially have the customers that you need to sell that electricity to right away. But if you have the Bitcoin miners, you have them available the moment that a, gen a reactor begins generating electricity. And then over time, you develop the transmission infrastructure to get wherever you need it to go, or you build the, the remote mine that's going to be built on that, that site. And then you can either redeploy the Bitcoin miners, or you can set them up in such a way that they can scale up and down with the day-to-day -day variability of the, uh, the local demands. Like, it's a pretty big idea with like all kinds of crazy game theory to it because it's just we need to get the right people to pay attention to this technology and then once they start building it and then it becomes hyper competitive and we like I'm, I'm hoping that that the uh as bitcoin miners and asics become more commoditized as we're starting to see that there's less and less uh efficiency gains for each successive generation of asic that it'll it'll standardize throughout uh, the uh the industry, and it'll be easier for these like industries like nuclear to to ad adapt it into their strategies as well. Well, I find the whole thing fascinating. If people want to read more about this or speak to you, and how do they do that? Well, on Twitter, I go by Nuclear Bitcoiner, and then the name, yeah. Um, the, the SMR roadmap is a good place to learn about what we're doing in Canada. And then there's uh, a bunch of, if you want to go into some nuclear podcasts, there's uh, the Decoupled podcast. There's uh, Titans of Nuclear. Titans of Nuclear. Titans of Nuclear, yeah. That sounds like my nuclear podcast. Yeah, that's that's Brent Kugelmass. And then there's another one. Forgetting. We'll, we'll find it. Yeah. I'm, 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 sl I'm, yeah, I'm slipping on the name of it. Well, listen, uh, I'm really grateful that you came in, that you've been educating us on this. Uh, I find the subject fascinating. I want to learn more. I find fusion super fascinating. It's just a shame it'll probably happen before I before I get to see it. Yeah, and Bitcoin mining is going to supercharge the whole thing. That, well, at least my hope. That is. All right, man. Well, listen, appreciate you coming in. Thank you for doing this. And, Thanks for uh, having me. Safe journey home. Yeah, more adventures. Yeah, and with this, this Negan thing, I'm going to be off to Japan in November to speak at an international nuclear conference. And then I was also accepted to do the same at uh, the Adopting Bitcoin conference in El Salvador a few, a few weeks before that. So yeah, I went from just a, a guy that just hung out in a lab listening to podcasts and now I'm jet setting all around the world, evangelizing about mining Bitcoin with nuclear power. International nuclear playboy. I love it, man. You keep <laughs> going, keep flying, keep true. You got to get up to your age in countries, by the way. Somebody told me that once. You should, you should visit as many countries as your age because you're always going to new ones. And then you've got to stay ahead. Well, we'll see. We'll keep traveling, buddy, and stay in touch and good luck with this. Thanks. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to What Bitcoin Did. Thank you for putting up with all my football chat. I hope it's not turning too many of you off. But if you are interested, we are creating this little kind of Bitcoin bars around football. It's slowly, slowly. 
I am introducing people to it. We've had our first meetup. We're going to have another one in October. I am gradually working on orange pilling people. One of the cool things we're going to be doing soon, if you go and check out our Rail Bedford feed, you'll see that when someone scores a goal, we put up like this little social media card with their photo. Well, I've got a session soon with the players. I'm going to be teaching them a little bit about Bitcoin. We're going to be setting them up with their wallets and we're going to be putting QR codes on those social media cards. So like if someone scores a goal and you want to tip them a few stats, you'll be able to do that, which is pretty cool. So gradually, slowly, slowly, I'm orange pilling Bedford and I'm Bedford pilling some Bitcoiners, which is pretty cool. Now, I hope you enjoyed this show with Ryan. The cross-section of Bitcoin and nuclear is fascinating. This is just a start for me. It's definitely something I'm going to be focusing a bit more on. Danny has been talking to a couple of people. We're going to be trying to get on the show to talk a bit more about nuclear. So keep an eye out for that. Hope you're all well. I hope you are having a good week. If you've got any questions, drop me an email. I will try and get back to you. You can get me on hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right, I will see you later in the week.